Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 71, The Battle of Taranto, Part 2. On the night of November the 11th, a little after 9 p.m., the civilians of Taranto were settling down for the evening. However, military personnel, in particular, those manning the anti-aircraft batteries on shore and those doing the same on the dozens of vessels and either Mar Grande or Mar Piccolo were on full alert. Suddenly, one of the many diaphones, a device that could pick up the sound of aircraft, detected a plane far off. The alarms went off, and the civilians rushed to the air raid shelters. Although there was nothing to see in the dark sky, a few of the anti-aircraft batteries fired shots into the air. But soon the firing stopped and the people made their way back home. Things settled down. An hour later, the alarms went off again. This time, as the people came out of their homes, they could hear a plane flying high overhead. Unbeknownst to the civilians, the plane overhead was already heading south. It was the last of the Sunderland flying boats, making one last reconnaissance flight. Once more, things settled down, and the people returned to their homes. Then, at 10.50 p.m., the alarms went off again. The people began to lumber to the basements, but this time, they clearly heard the sound of many planes to their south. But also, another sound. Another plane, yes, but it didn't sound like the others. It then dawned on everyone below that besides the rumbling coming from the south, There was a single drone right above them. In panic, the people now dashed to their protective shelters. Also, the gun batteries surrounding the Mar Grande started shooting wildly in the air. As Italy had no nighttime fighters, this was their only defense. The Russian civilians probably missed what happened next, though it may have made them feel better. With all the bullets, tracer shells, and steel fragments flying over the main harbor, all coming together in its center, the night sky exploded with color. The idea of an airborne attack on Taranto was first conceived back in 1935, when Italy invaded Abyssinia. Great Britain was considering its military options, but in the end, fighting Italy, and also maybe Germany, over the African country was out of the question. In truth, Britain wasn't ready for a war on that scale. Still, Admiral Dudley Pound, commander of the Mediterranean fleet in 1935, wanted a plan for a torpedo attack launched from a carrier on Taranto. It was drafted, but as Britain decided not to take military action, the plan was locked in a safe for the next three years. That is, until Captain Arthur L. St. George Leicester 
came to the Mediterranean to command the carrier Glorious. Although a gunnery specialist, his training betrayed itself as he saw the carrier with its ability to project its power far away from itself as the future ultimate power in the naval world. So, Admiral Pound, keeping his options open, had Leicester update the Taranto plan. The captain, with his staff and the pilots of HMS Glorious, who were flying Osprey fighters and swordfish, practiced a simulated attack for the next few months. In particular, they focused on night attacks, swift launching other aircraft, and most importantly, air-sea coordination. With all this done, Leister reported back that it could be done, but success may depend upon surprise. Admiral Pound read the report, and back into the safe it went. Jumping ahead to mid-1940, Leister was now Rear Admiral Aircraft Carriers MED, or RAA MED, and many of his men from 1936 were now aboard the carrier Illustrious, which was good for Cunningham as the HMS Glorious was lost during the Battle of Norway. In September of 1940, Leister took the updated plan concerning Taranto to Cunningham, who he knew would appreciate its audacity. Besides, as these were the dark days for Great Britain, Cunningham, everyone knew, was looking to do his part to change this course, and he had three essentials working for him. The morale of the Mediterranean fleet, thanks largely to Cunningham's presence, Leicester's experienced crew, and the detailed Bob Martin photos from Malta. Cunningham ordered that exercises begin again to prepare for an operation against Taranto. By the middle of October, the pilots from the carriers Eagle and Illustrious had finished training for the attack. But here is where Cunningham's ability to see the Mediterranean in a way few could took this plan to another level. The plan against Taranto, codenamed Operation Judgment, was to be folded into an even larger plan called Operation MB-8. This was due to the various needs of the British in the Mediterranean. Malta needed reinforcements of ships and men. The Eastern Fleet needed strengthening. Crete was now a destination for other British troops. And the Italians still needed the wool pulled over their eyes when the British decided to approach Taranto. The attack there would only be one of multiple simultaneous movements by the Mediterranean fleet in early November. The first part of this plan was already underway. Additional naval units were making their way from Gibraltar to Alexandria. This included one battleship, two cruisers, and three destroyers. Not only did each ship have its normal complement, but every piece of extra space was crammed with men and supplies bound for Egypt. This group of ships was only one of three to be moved around during the first ten days of November. There were also four supply convoys moving to and from various points in the Mediterranean during that same time. The first convoy, codenamed MW3, would soon leave Alexandria, 
Some of its freighters were going to Malta, while others, loaded with guns and ammo, were heading to Suda Bay on the north side of Crete. The second convoy, named AN-6, would leave Egypt loaded with gasoline for Greece. The third group, called ME-3, was made up of fast freighters that would depart Malta and make their way back to Alexandria. And finally, the fourth convoy, AS-5, which had unloaded supplies in Greece and Turkey, was now returning to Alexandria. The plan was coming together, and Cunningham was grateful for the additional forces, already mentioned, that had left Britain and were now near Gibraltar. The two other naval groups involved in MB-8 were some of Admiral James Somerville's Force H and Cunningham's fleet from Alexandria. And that plan, before things went horribly wrong for the British, was thus. Picture, as the four convoys started out on their respective routes, all three naval groups would head towards Malta to make the Italians think a massive British naval assault was about to take place. But then, Force H would instead head west back to Gibraltar. The remaining ships of Cunningham's fleet would then split. Force X, a group of cruisers under Vice Admiral Pridham Wimple, would approach the Adriatic Sea and make as if to attack the Italian shipping going between Italy and Albania. The second group, made up of carriers Eagle and Illustrious, would launch their attack against Taranto. The last group of all remaining ships would head towards Crete and rendezvous just west of the island. The two other groups, already mentioned, would head there as well after the air assault on Taranto. That way, they would be ready in case the Italians, in a fit of rage and revenge, launched their superior numbers against the British. As for the attack on Taranto itself, every swordfish from both carriers, about 30 planes, would participate. It was estimated about half of the aircraft would not return. The pilots, understandably, were not informed of this. The date was set for the evening of October 21st, the anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. But then, some form of fate, or luck, or chance, stepped in and set its will against the would-be attackers. First, as the swordfish planes aboard the Illustrious were being fitted with extra gas tanks, one of the men working in a cockpit slipped, and his screwdriver completed a circuit between two live electrical terminals. Spark shot out, and one landed near gasoline from an auxiliary tank which had not been properly drained. That swordfish was soon in flames, and then a second, and the flames spread. Sprinklers soon kicked in, and the fire was put out. But not before those two aircraft burned, and five more had parts damaged by the salt water. The attack had to be postponed. Then, Greece was attacked by Italy, and now Cunningham's responsibilities was increased to convoy cover of transports, as they took men and supplies to Crete, and then the 5th Greek Division to the mainland. But there was more. As a new date was being considered for the attack, 
the Eagle was found to be in need of vital repairs. It was discovered that the attacks from Italian bombers earlier that summer might have missed the carrier, but they came close enough. The pipes on board that carried gasoline throughout the aircraft carrier were damaged, a clear fire hazard, one that necessitated immediate withdrawal and repairs. Cunningham, after losing seven swordfish, just lost one of his two carriers. So five of Eagle swordfish were transferred to Illustrious, and the coming attack would now have to be made with only 24 planes. But there was one more setback for the plan to attack Taranto. On November 9th, two swordfish, right after takeoff, had their engines lock up. The next day, it happened again to a third plane. The crews were rescued, but the aircraft were lost to the sea. Turns out that those three planes were all fueled from the same tanker, which was found to have contaminated gasoline. The tanker was sent away, and no more planes were lost. Still, the attack had to now be carried out by only 21 aircraft. The assault force was shrinking fast. According to the plan first created in 1935 and then updated in 38, a surprise appearance by the torpedo aircraft would go a long way to resulting in success. And although the Italians did not have radar, Taranto did have 13 electrical listening devices that could easily pick up the sound of the British aircraft far enough away to prepare a wall of searchlights and anti-aircraft fire. With that element gone, a diversion became even more important. But then came the unknowable aspects for the planners. Although 14,000 yards of nets were ordered and meant to help protect the ships from torpedoes, only about 4,600 yards worth were in place at the time of the attack. It was decided that more than that would interfere with the ship's ability to move through the harbor. So, although there were 21 batteries of anti-aircraft guns, 84 automatic cannons of 20 and 37 millimeters, 109 light machine guns, and 22 modern searchlights, along with the 600 anti-aircraft guns from six battleships, seven cruisers, and 28 destroyers, there were gaps in the defenses. Again, not that the British were privy to them. Also, of the 90 barrage balloons discovered in the recent Bob Martin photos, 60 of them had been damaged during a storm on November 6th and would not be replaced due to a shortage of hydrogen. Cunningham's overall plan was changed to allow for the loss of the carrier, the addition of Crete and Greece's needs, and for the reinforcements on their way from the home island. There were now six battle groups to consider. However, the four convoys remained largely the same. Still, the ships, naval, and merchant, their routes and changes in course during the first ten days of November would leave the supermarina in Rome dazed and confused. Let's see how you do. Force A, which was made up of three battleships, the carrier Illustrious, two cruisers, and 13 destroyers, 
was based in Alexandria and contained the ships that would attack Taranto and feign the attack against the Italian convoys supporting the Greek war. Force B was made up of the cruisers Ajax and Sydney. They kept the same assignment as before, taking troops and equipment from Port Said in Egypt to Suda Bay on the north side of Crete. Then the Sydney would join Force A, as would Ajax once it was relieved by the Calcutta. Force C was the cruiser Orion. It was to take RAF equipment and personnel to a harbor near Athens, and afterwards to head to Suda Bay. Force D, which was made up of one battleship, two anti-aircraft ships, six destroyers, two trawlers, and one minesweeper, would help watch the convoys heading east toward Crete. Force F was made up of the reinforcements from Britain, one battleship, two cruisers, and three destroyers. For this operation, three more destroyers were borrowed from Admiral Somerville's Force H. To ensure their safe arrival, Force F would be escorted as far as Malta by the carrier Ark Royal, one cruiser, and five destroyers, before turning back west. Now that the plan was updated and incorporated these additional ships, along with the Mediterranean's fleet's new responsibilities, it was time to get underway. Convoy AN-6, heading to Greece from Egypt with gasoline, sailed on November 4th. Convoy MW-3 left Alexandria on November 5th, but split as some of their ships headed for Malta, while the others made for Crete as originally planned. However, the part of MW-3 heading to Malta was discovered by Italian reconnaissance aircraft. The convoy ships were soon harassed by Italian bombers, but several of those were shot down, along with a few of the reconnaissance aircraft. Their crews were rescued and detained. Next, convoy ME-3 might have been made up of empty transport ships dashing to Alexandria from Malta, but with its speed, a minimum of 15 knots, made it appear to be carrying valuable cargo and thus confusing the Italians' perception even more. And finally, convoy AS-5 kept to its original plan to leave points from Turkey and Greece and make good time back to Alexandria. And all these ships would make it to their destinations. The other two parts of this plan were the attack on Taranto and the feint on the shipping supporting the Italian troops in Greece and Albania. As for the feint, that was still to be carried out by Force X, consisting of three cruisers and two destroyers under Vice Admiral Pridham Wimple. On November 8th, a part of Force A that would eventually attack Taranto met with other ships from Force A halfway between Crete and Malta. The carrier Illustrious and its four accompanying cruisers took up positions north of one of the convoys for a part of its voyage. But then, Italian reconnaissance planes showed up, but they were either shot down or chased away. The next day, the reconnaissance aircraft were replaced by Italian bombers, flying high above the carrier and cruisers. But their bombing missed the ships, and they were finally chased off. What the Supermarina didn't notice 
because its reconnaissance planes were chased away, was that, as all these convoys moved apace, the illustrious, with its cruiser and destroyer support, stayed in place. That is, until November the 9th. Then, as darkness came, they slipped north, positioning themselves for the attack. The next day, November 10th, when it appeared that they were alone and undetected, they changed course and headed northeast. Their destination was just off the west coast of California, a Greek island just south of Prevena in the Ionian Sea. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Operation MB-8, the codename for this overall naval movement, was going smoothly. Operation Judgment, the codename for the attack on Taranto, was equally shaping up well. And because of this, the Supermarina in Rome, although valiantly trying to keep up for the last few days, was as confused as Cunningham wanted them to be. The main reason for this, apart from the sheer numbers involved, and all the course changes was that, because of British radar, Italian reconnaissance aircraft, fighters, and bombers were disappearing from the sky, never to be seen again, along with their crews. Simply, reports were not getting back to Rome. The harbor at Taranto was viewed by the attackers as having two parts. First, there is the basin of Mar Grande, which is three miles wide and is separated from the sea by San Pietro Island and submerged breakwaters. The other part is the more inland harbor called Mar Piccolo. But for our purposes, in combination with Luke Whitehorn's map we used as an episode cover, let's describe the physical features of the harbor of Taranto as the face of a clock. At the 12 o'clock position on the northern shore of Mar Grande, there are a series of gun batteries. At the one o'clock position is the canal that leads into Mar Piccolo, and on either side of the canal is the actual town of Taranto. Also on either side of the canal were gun batteries. At the two o'clock position, in the main harbor itself, on the eastern side, was the top of a row of battleships, cruisers, and destroyers, which ran south along the eastern coast. They were protected to their west by a causeway called Diga di Tarantola, and attached to it was a parallel line of torpedo nets. This causeway entered into the harbor from the five o'clock position, and on the left or west side of Diga di Tarantola was a line of barrage balloons. At the three o'clock position along the shore was the beginning of a line of barrage balloons that went down and only ends at the 5 o'clock. And there is another gun battery. And within the harbor itself, on the eastern side, were the vessels Veneto, Doria, Cavour, Delio, and Littorio, along with 
smaller craft. Also at the five o'clock position, but further inland, was an oil storage depot. At the six o'clock position, the land turned south and away, and that is the lower edge of the Mar Grande. Also at the six o'clock position is another gun battery, as well as another submerged causeway that juts out in a northwesterly direction. It goes for about a mile out and then stops, to be met by three more gun batteries and a fourth slightly to the east. Here is the main opening for ships to enter and exit the harbor. On the other side of this entryway is the small island of Isoleto San Paola, which is at the 8 o'clock position. From it to the 9 o'clock position runs another submerged causeway that connects to the large island of San Pietro. This island has three gun batteries of its own. North of San Pietro is another causeway slash submerged breakwater that goes for just over a mile and holds two more gun batteries. Then, at about the 10 o'clock position, is another small break for ships to enter and exit. Then, at the 11 o'clock position, there's another causeway that starts up again and goes until land is reached. And at the end of that causeway, there are two more gun batteries. Zooming out a bit, the Italian battleships and larger cruisers were in the Mar Grande, while the smaller cruisers, destroyers, and other vessels were moored in the Mar Piccolo. Some of the latter were the Triste, Balzano, and Trento. On the southeast edge of Piccolo was a seaplane base, which had a gun battery on either side. As for the Piccolo in general, the shores of this landlocked body of water were ringed with hangars, fuel tanks, and storage buildings. Although the British were down to 21 swordfish, it was decided that the attack would come in two waves. If all went well, the first wave would achieve surprise, and the second would come as the defenders were exhausted and hopefully thinking the worst was over. The first attack would be led by Lieutenant Commander K.W. Williamson, and after seeing that morning's Bob Martin photos, he decided to split his aircraft into two groups to, hopefully, confuse the anti-aircraft gunners on the ground. One group would approach from the west at 9,000 feet, drop to sea level, then cross over the Diga di Tarantola and set their torpedoes loose at the Cavour. Meanwhile, his other group would approach from the northwest. This group would go for whatever targets looked best. The second group would be led by J.W. Ginger Hale. He would keep his group together as they all came in from the northwest. However, they would then turn south and fly right over the row of larger ships, hoping to hit one of the battleships. At this angle, not only was there a greater chance of hitting a cable from one of the barrage balloons near the end of their run, but during their final run, they would also be in a perfect position for the guns along the canal. So their chances of success were increased, but so too was their chance of not making it back to the illustrious. Of course, what no one for the British could know was that the Taranto defenses were less than 60 barrage balloons because of the most recent storm. At 8 p.m., the last of the swordfish of the first wave was on deck.
and because of their practice and training, they were all airborne just before 9 p.m. The crews were tired, their support teams as well, but also excited. That morning's reconnaissance photo showed a sixth battleship was in port. It had just arrived. The planes carrying bombs each had six 250-pound bombs. The planes that were to drop 16 illuminating flares only carried four bombs. The rest carried torpedoes. On the first wave, eight planes were formed up, flying northwest together. The other four had gotten separated in the clouds during the first part of the flight, and Williamson could only hope they still made the 200-plus mile trip. Lieutenant Swain, one of those that had gotten separated and unknowingly flew a more direct path, got to the harbor 30 minutes before the main group. While waiting for the rest to arrive, Swain decided to frighten those below by flying in circles over the harbor. So by the time the main group arrived, the eager pilot had worked the Italians into a lather, and many of the gun batteries were already throwing hot pieces of metal into the air. Now that the first attack force was closing in, two of the planes that were carrying the parachute flares broke off and prepared to fly over the actual town of Taranto, where the canal is located, and drop a flare every half mile. The others had already turned west to come in over the harbor and ships in their respective groups. If timed perfectly, the dropped flares would be outlining the ships in Mar Grande as the torpedo planes rushed in low from the west. The Mark 12 torpedoes being used by the torpedo planes were set to explode only after having run for 300 yards. This meant that the tiny propeller located on the nose had to turn for 300 yards in order for the detonator to be armed. Then, if they struck a ship or went under one, they would explode, triggered by the magnetic detonator in its nose. If launched closer than 300 yards, well, it would just be a small piece of metal ramming into a much larger piece of metal. Lieutenant Commander Williamson, the leader of the initial wave, came in first. Passing over San Pietro Island at 4,000 feet, he turned southeast to fly parallel with the outer breakwater below. Then he turned sharply east, went low over Diga di Tarantola, and almost hit a cable from one of the remaining barrage balloons. There were two destroyers before him, and either one would have made an excellent target. But he passed by them as they tried to take him out, and quickly loosed his torpedo at the battleship Cavour of 24,000 tons that was quickly filling up his front view. He was 30 feet above the water. He then turned sharply starboard, or to the right, and increased his speed to make his getaway. But suddenly, his plane was hit by machine gun fire and no longer in Williamson's control. It quickly went into the water. Strangely, he and his observer, Lieutenant Scarlett, survived the crash, only to be pounced on by the dock workers. After getting roughed up by the civilians, they were then treated by the military personnel with kindness and respect. Meanwhile, their torpedo barely missed a destroyer and hit the Cavour between the bridge and the B-turret 
Immediately, the battleship started lowering into the water. It could be argued that the next two planes made the trip for nothing. They took the same path as Williamson, were not hit by a single bullet, and their torpedoes missed their targets and exploded harmlessly in the water. Then came Lieutenant Kemp. He crossed over just north of San Pietro Island, hoping his alternate flight path would help. It was not to be. The gunners on the island and the nearby breakwater spotted him and let loose with their bullets. He imagined there was no way he wouldn't be brought down tonight. He just hoped he could get the job done first. But somehow, all those pieces of metal kept missing him as he headed straight for the town of Taranto in the upper northeast corner of the harbor. But before getting there, he banked right and made for the line of cruisers. Now he was flying in between the cruisers and the gun batteries on land. Some of the fire from the cruisers passed by him, only to strike the merchant ships at anchor. He then spotted the Littorio, and when about a thousand yards away, released his torpedo. He had wanted to wait until he was closer, but the bullets and tracers were flying all around him, somehow, again, missing him. He then climbed steeply, banked back and forth, until clear of the harbor and out of view of all those hostile guns. To his relief, as he watched, turned around in his seat, his torpedo delivered the goods. Striking the Littorio and creating a hole in it, 49 feet long and 32 feet wide, off its starboard bow. Lieutenant Swain, who had gotten there before the main group, now took his turn. He crossed into the harbor just south of Kemp's path, but still just north of San Pietro. His flight path had him practically coming straight at the Lotorio, whereas Kemp had flown further north, turned back a bit, and then came at it from the east. Coming in fast, he loosed his torpedo 400 yards away. Pulling back sharply, he just missed the ship's mast. His torpedo struck the Lotorio just after Kemp's, at the Lotorio's port quarter. Kemp's path took longer, so they both ended up releasing their respective torpedo almost at the same time. Swain's torpedo created a gap 23 by 5 feet. The water started rushing in, and the battleship was on its way to settling on the harbor floor. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now came the last torpedo-carrying swordfish, flown by Lieutenant Mond. He came in from the northwest and turned south. The fire coming at him was fast and furious, so he banked and weaved as best he could. Soon he saw and focused on the battleship Venento, located just southeast of the sinking Littorio. Getting closer, but still further away than the others had been, he released his torpedo. Because of his early release, he still had a ways to go before being beyond the range of the guns firing at him.
So he stayed low and put the merchant ships in between himself and the majority of the tracers coming at him. He soon pulled up into the safety of the dark sky. However, it was all for naught. His torpedo missed the Venento and exploded harmlessly in the water. During this torpedo attack, the four other planes were attacking targets in the Mar Piccolo. Of the four planes, two were carrying flares and bombs, the other two only bombs. Captain Patch of the Royal Marines was focused on a group of destroyers. He put his plane into a dive, starting at 8,000 feet. At 200 feet, he released his six bombs, then pulled out and headed for the dark landscape to the east. However, his bombs either missed their targets or were duds and did not explode. Sub-Lieutenant Sara, soon after, dove from 8,000 feet to about 1,500 feet, but had trouble identifying his target on Mar Piccolo. Instead, he spotted hangars for the seaplane base to the east of Taranto. What he couldn't see were the gun batteries on either side of it. He headed that way with the rest of his dive and dropped his bombs. As he pulled up, Sarah was rewarded with an impressive explosion below. It was probably his staggered flight path, followed by a sudden dash the last 1,500 feet at the hangars that allowed him to get down, release his load, before the surprised gunners could get his range. Sub-Lieutenant Ford had gotten separated from the group on the flight over. He came into the harbor at about the 6 o'clock position and then headed for the cruisers in Mar Piccolo. He dropped his bombs from about 1,500 feet due to the intense gunfire from the ground, as most of the other planes were gone, and the Italian defenses could focus on him. But again, his bombs either missed or did not explode on impact. He went north for a ways into the darkness and turned left, heading out west of the harbor. The last plane of the first wave was flown by Lieutenant Murray, like Williamson's plan called for, he came in from the west, made his way to the far side of Mar Piccolo, hoping to be undetected. It was a vain hope. The ground fire by now was intense, and Murray dropped his bombs from 3,000 feet. It was a tale of good news, bad news, good news. The good news is that one of his bombs landed on a destroyer. The bad news was that it, like so many others, did not detonate that night on impact. The other good news is that the bomb, after all, was a heavy piece of metal and put a hole in the destroyer. Repairs would be needed. He then headed east into the darkness before eventually turning southeast. The first wave of attack planes was gone. In real time, the raid only took a matter of minutes. But for the Italians below... Still hearing enemy planes, real or imagined, they kept firing into the air long past 11.30. The second wave was already in the air and heading for this firestorm over Taranto.
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Uh, just to let you know, the third and final part of the Battle of Taranto will be out soon. Uh, we still have to cover the second wave, and then the British have to figure out if they actually got anything done. Were, were their objectives achieved? Um, the reports coming back from the pilots, who are trying to be honest as always, um, wasn't very um, promising. So they'll have to figure that out. Then we'll jump back into the Battle um, of Italy and Greece, where the Greek soldiers are continuing to push the Italians back into Albania. Albania. For my audible recommendation, I hope you check out Savage Continent, Europe in the Aftermath of World War II. Uh, this book covers the next 10 years after the war, but it really goes into details uh, covering the rest of the 1940s. You've got all the territory that Russia has taken and not given back. Um, cities all over Europe are destroyed. Families are scattered. You've got the concentration camp victims You've got the prisoner of war victims. They all have to be, um, you know, sent back home and, and taken care of. Um, you've got um, feuds in between people who, who sided with the Nazis, who didn't, who didn't do anything. Um, Anti-Semitism rages its ugly head again. Um, you've got all these issues that have to be settled. Everybody thinks, okay, it's 1945, the war is over, everything's fine now. But as we all know, I mean, Europe had to literally be rebuilt. So many lives had to be put back together. And it's a really interesting story, uh, and I think you'll like it a lot. And now I'd like to thank all the new members to the podcast. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the first two episodes. The next one will be coming out the first week of next month. Um, so thank you to Nigel, Malcolm, Daniel, Alberto, Alex, Brent, Paul, Edward, Bart, Simon, Sharon, Michael, David, Alan, Nick, and Gary. So thank you all very much. As always, please let me know if there's something in particular you would like to have covered. And just to let all the members know, um, I can sit here and say into a microphone, thank you very much. Uh, it doesn't do very much for you. Uh, so what I'm going to try very hard to do, and I think I can do this, is put out three membership episodes for the month of March. And that's just my way of saying thank you for everyone who signed up so far. And finally, I'd like to thank RPG for his donation. He's from Dingwall Highland in the UK. So I will see you as soon as I can with episode 72, and then we'll get back to Greece. And as always... Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big... Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big... Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.